Alors, lasso. This afternoon we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion. And a theme that runs through a lot of Buddhist meditation is going from coarse to subtle. From coarse to subtle. So just as an example, in the four, appli- four close applications of mindfulness, the four satipatthanas, among the four, the body is the easiest to attend to. It's right, so tangible. What's easier to observe than your own body? And then it goes to feelings. They're pretty easy. I mean, you, know you're, you know whether you're happy or sad. And then it goes to this whole wide array of mental processes, events, states of consciousness. That's clearly more subtle. And then it goes to phenomena. One can think, well, that's easy. You've already done it. But now we're dealing not just with the events themselves, uh, that is, material, physical phenomena, mental phenomena, but now we're looking in phenomena at the pratita samudpada relationships. Relationships. So, for example, I can look over it. There's Thai and there's Sarah. So, Thai, Sarah, got it. But, so, that's not too hard. But now, what's the relationship between Thai and Sarah? That's more subtle. There's clearly a relationship. So man and wife, but many, many dimensions to the relationship that you both know much more than anybody else knows. But to understand the nature of that relationship. And William James, I'm really going tangent on tangent here, but William James made a very provocative statement that I think is true. And that is the relationships themselves are every bit as real as the relata, the things that are related. One thinks, well, no, there's Ty and there's, and there's Sarah, two separate people. And like that's what's real. And then a relationship is kind of some filmy, effervescent, ethereal kind of stuff. He says, not true. The relationship is as real as anything else. Causal relationships, personal relationships, and so forth. So that was all a tangent, which I found very interesting. <laughs> Maybe you did too, but at least, I, at least one person found it really interesting. And so in a similar fashion in compassion, we will go through this cycle once again of attending that is cultivating compassion with respect to these three levels of suffering, and they go from coarse to subtle. The suffering of suffering, blatant suffering, ants know it, cockroaches know it, uh, geniuses know it. There it is. It's obvious. We don't like suffering. We want pleasure. And then we'll go to the suffering of change, and then the most subtle, the very, very subtle, third, third form of suffering, the dimension. But now, today we'll focus on the blatant suffering. And when it occurs, there's a, hum- a human predilection that's been operating for very long time, a very long time, and that is when we suffer, we just want it to stop. We just want it to stop. And if it's here, I want to be elsewhere. And so escape is the natural response, habitual response, deeply ingrained spot response. If there's something fearful, get away from it. If there's something painful, get away from it. Just escape. And escape for good, if we could really have our, our preference, we'd escape for good and not have it hounding us, that is chasing after us, anxious then. Maybe it will catch us again and again and again. And so that, that aspiration, that really primal aspiration, I want to escape. I don't want to suffer. I want to be free. I don't want to be afraid of suffering. I don't want suffering or the fear of suffering. I just want to be flat out free. That's the inspiration of these, of these yogis, centuries and perhaps millennia before the Buddha in India, just tracing back to, I think, what is probably the most ancient contemplative tradition on earth, tracing back to Mother India, of not just wanting an anesthetic, not simply wanting a salve, not just wanting first aid to the suffering, 
But somewhere long before the Buddha ever came along, some aspiration for moksha, for real liberation, arose. And so it was already centuries old by the time Gautama left his palace in pursuit of moksha, liberation, liberation, something irreversible. And of course, he was coming from a contemplative, really mature, ripe, wise tradition. There was certainly a lot of rigidity in the Brahmanic tradition with the ritual and the fixation on that and the dogmatism and so forth. No question. While that was there, there was also this really dynamic, vibrant, experimental, shramanic tradition, the shramanas, these, these mostly men who would go out into the jungle, they would relieve, release all security, and all, all the security of home and job and family and everything, and just go off in pursuit of moksha. And so, and moreover, by the time Gautama came along, centuries and centuries of yogis had discovered through their own experience that consciousness doesn't terminate at death. If it does, then moksha is a really lightweight deal. It's one well-placed bullet. I mean, really, if we speak really harshly, it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a bottle full of sleeping tablets. Come on, it's not that hard. If you don't like suffering and you just don't mind being obliterated, then, you know, check it out or check out. But these yogis, this was not folklore, and it's really just a stupid idea. That this was just some kind of a, I don't know, a mindless folklore thing that the Buddha, being a big dope, just kind of picked up from the culture. I just find it amazing that anybody believes that. This was something based upon centuries of contemplative research and really high-powered stuff of developing samadhi so that the cultivation of samadhi was a mature, ripened, really sophisticated technology by the time Gauta came along, and he knew it. So that's why the first thing he did when he split from, the, from his home, find the greatest samadhi, samadhi masters he could. He was going to, like if, a friend of mine back in the 1960s really wanted to study physics, and he's very, very bright. And he was living in America, and this is the 1960s, so he thought, who's the best for theoretical physics? He wanted to go for the real hardcore, the cutting edge. And he thought, on the West Coast, it's Richard Feynman at Caltech. On the East Coast, it's John, uh, John Wheeler at the Institute for Advanced Studies. So it was kind of like in America, within America, those were the two really heavy-duty dudes. You know, if you wanted to study theoretical physics really well, you'd go there. That's what Gautama did. He found the really heavy-duty dudes who were available, and he found two of them. He found one, and it would be like he's going off and getting a doctorate with, 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 John, with Richard Feynman in three months. And Richard Feynman says, I'd like to establish an endowed chair for you. You know, it'll be right with me. And saying, sorry, Rick, sorry, Dick, you know, this didn't quite do it for me. I'm going to go check out the East Coast and see what John Wheeler has cooking. And you get a PhD with him in three months. And John Wheeler says, here's an endowed chair. Join me at the Institute for Advanced Studies. Sorry, John, this didn't quite do it for me. And then you go off to a Buddhist monastery. He's looking for escape. That's kind of a, a crass equivalent of the word for liberation. And lo and behold, many people before the Buddha thought they'd found it, and for very good reason they thought they'd found it. And how they escaped was inwards. Inwards. Where's the suffering? Well, it's physical and it's mental, and it's inter interpersonal, but that's also then psychological. When it boils down to it, it's suffering of the, of, the, of the mind and suffering of the body. So if I had conflict, for example, with Rachel, then I could say, oh, the, rela the, the, pro the problem, the difficulties in the relationship. Well, no, it's not really. It's just in my mind. I mean, she could, she could you know, go to another continent. I could still be troubled by my relationship with Rachel. She could be, you know, no problem. Hasta la vista. I'm out of here. And I, oh, no, my relationship with Rachel, oh, baloney. It's, it's a problem in your mind. 
Not a, it's not out there in the relationship. Relationships don't suffer. People suffer. Right? So, they found moksha. They thought they did. And they found it by really kind of pulling the plug on appearances. So, Massimo, in, in your wonderful imagery, spoke of this sucking sensation. You know, where all the appearance, and it's kind of, you know, I, I had fun with it, but it's kind of a cool image too. Like a black hole that just sucks in all the light anywhere around, you know. And then it, it just, and then it closes the door behind it. So from outside you can't see anything except for like, ooh, that's pretty dark. And inside all the light is captured in there because the gravitational pull is so strong that light can't escape, right? So in a rather similar fashion, it's, it's kind of a cool, cool image is that when we withdraw the awareness within right into, for example, awareness of awareness, sucks all the appearances in after it. You know? Visual appearances, auditory, tactile. <laughs> all goes into the mental realm. And then all the activity of the mental realm, the dreams, the thoughts, the images, and so forth, right down the rabbit hole. Okay? I'm getting pretty Italian, huh? Not bad. Okay? I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying. It's an American imitation, but, you know, I'm doing this all the second. And so that's how they did it. That's how they did it. You got physical pain? Good. Withdraw your awareness from the body. You got mental pain? You're suffering? An anxious? Frustrated? Dissatisfied? Depressed? Good. Just suck all your awareness right out of the mind. You know, just leave a hollow mind, hollow coarse mind. Whoop. But there's no such thing as a hollow mind. It's gone. Because all your awareness is sucked down into a deeper dimension. And this is something discovered long before the Buddha, that when you slip your awareness down into the substrate consciousness, beyond that into the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, all of these have been explored before the Buddha ever came along. There's no manifest suffering. There is no blatant suffering. Not even in the first jhana. There's no blatant suffering. No, no, no blatant suffering of the body because you don't experience your body. Your, your awareness is completely withdrawn. And it's withdrawn from all the physical senses. So I could, I could gaze at the sun and, and that would really hurt. And that would be associated with visual. Well, and I could hear, you know, really loud sounds like a chainsaw going off right next to my head. That would be very painful. But, so that's related to auditory. But if your awareness is complete withdrawn from all of the five physical senses, then you're not going to have any pain with respect to the five senses. And then if it's totally withdrawn from your mind, your coarse mind with its thoughts, personal history, emotions... There's not going to be any suffering in your mind either because all the awareness is taken out, right? And it slipped down into the substrate consciousness and that's blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual. There's no suffering there, no blatant suffering. Now, tomorrow, after day after tomorrow and Monday, when we go to the suffering of change, is there the suffering of change in the substrate consciousness? Yeah, there is. Doesn't feel like suffering, feels pretty good actually. But there's grasping, there can be attachment, right? But if you want to really get out of, and this, this is how it relates to today's, today's meditation, which is all about focusing on, for a day, blatant suffering. Shamatha pretty well does that. Temporarily, Shamatha does the job. Because you simply withdraw your awareness from your body and from your mind, and of course from the five physical senses, which means also you're withdrawing it from all your relationships with other people. And then you're withdrawing into an area where there is no suffering. So you're free. You found moksha by withdrawing from the world. And then these generations and generations, I don't know, I don't think anybody knows, who knows how many generations before Gautama, but they not only achieved shamat, but then they just like drop through that into the first jhana, drop through that second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, 
infinite space, infinite, you know, infinite consciousness, nothingness. And even beyond that, I mean, they got really subtle. They got really subtle. And they got so deep, each one thinking, this is moksha. And then another yogi say, no, there's something deeper. Check this out. You know, oh, wow, that's even subtler. So they got so far away from the world of, of change, the world of suffering. They thought they'd nailed it, you know. And Gautam was just, Gautam was brilliant. Because he saw that when you come out, you know, that you really aren't free. So that's one escape route. It's temporary, that is shamatha, as we all know, shamatha, at least we know conceptually. Shamatha by itself is not any irreversible escape, but it's pretty nice temporary escape. Temporary escape. Escape. And this was, this was a, a discovery of the great Indian sadhus of ancient India. Now the Buddha, being the great revolutionary that he was, he embraced, he adopted, and he incorporated this escape route, this escape strategy of samadhi. He embraced it all. All of the stages of samadhi, they're all part of Buddhism. Right up to the neither, neither oh, discernment nor non-discernment, non, non the peak of samsara. He embraced all of that and said, all of these have a place in my dharma. Right? But then what he added to it was the vipassana. And so there's two words that I commonly use for doing, for doing what we are doing here. One of these is, re is retreat. And that's a word some of you may know that I, I didn't like for some years because it seemed to have a defeatist quality to it. Right? And, and now, I've, you know, reflect, having reflected on, on the word again, now I'm, I'm happy with it again. And I think I've discussed this in the past, so I don't need to elaborate here. But the samadhi route, when you're facing suffering and you want to escape, the samadhi route is retreat. There's the samadhi. The samadhi's in my relationship with this person. It's in relationship with my body. It's in relationship with my personal history. I suffered childhood trauma. Let's imagine I didn't actually. And so, it's retreat. It's saying, this is really unpleasant. I'm losing the battle. Samsara is winning the battle. I'm losing the battle. I'm going to pull the plug on it and just withdraw from every manifestation of samsara that I can see and at least go as far as the substrate consciousness, which is your own personal ground for your own personal samsara. Right? It's not the, it's the substrate consciousness is not the basis of nirvana. It's not the ground of nirvana. But it is the basis of your own personal samsara. It is that out of which your personal samsara springs. It's like a, like a garden full of seeds. And it just gives you more and more samsara indefinitely. So retreat. Retreating into shamatha, retreating into samadhi, into dhyana. That is a retreat. You're withdrawing, you're recouping, and it may be very useful. Even in the Pali Canon, it's described that sometimes when the Buddha would become fatigued, and he had a body, he would become fatigued, then he'd just go off into the jungle and he'd just hang out in the dhyanas and refresh himself. He, the Buddha himself, even after enlightenment, would sometimes just retreat. You know? Or there was one occasion where one of his sanghas, one monastic community, they were just squabbling among them. They were bickering, bickering over, I think, their different interpretations of the vinaya, the monastic rules. You know, when you're a monk, there's just not much to do. <laughs> so, if you're a kind of a bickering sort, there's just not much to bicker about. You know, you're not doing business, you don't have families and so forth. So you think, well, what do we have? We have a bunch of monastic precepts. Good, let's argue about those. <laughs> So they were bickering about the interpretations of their vinaya, the monastic precepts, and the Buddha came in and wanted to be a, me uh, to be a mediator, you know, tried to, because they were really getting angry, upset, and quarreling and so forth. And the, then the Buddha came in to this group of quarreling monks, uh, 
as a mediator, says, hey, you know, we can, let's work this out, let's get some clarity. And they told him actually, I mean, to put it in real vernacular, they told him to buzz off. He said, we don't really need you here, we'll work this out, so, you know, chill, but we're on top of this. I think that takes a lot of chutzpah to take the, tell the Buddha to buzz off, but that's what they did. And so he did, of course. He didn't say, who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> you know, he didn't do that. He said, oh, you don't need me here? Okay. That's easy. So he just headed off the jungle and he just, he just rested in, in meditation for days or weeks until the, it finally dawned on the monks when they were, of course, not getting anywhere. They're just squabble, squabbling and squabbling. They finally then very meekly sought him out in the jungle and asked for his guidance once again. So even a Buddha... Even a Buddha may, on occasion, go into retreat when the body becomes fatigued or when he says, I can't help these people here. They don't, they don't, even, want, don't even want my help. So what do I do? Just retreat. So that's kind of a samadhi approach. And that is utterly incorporated. It's integral to the Buddhist path. But of course there's something else, and that is vipassana. And vipassana is not really much of a retreat. In fact, I don't think it's a retreat at all. It is an expedition. It's an expedition. So when you engage in the four close applications of mindfulness, sometimes called the four foundations of mindfulness, but the close application of mindfulness to the body, feelings, and so forth, you're not retreating from anything. You're going out into the front lines of where your suffering is. So when the Buddha summarized the Four Noble Truths, he said, here is the reality of suffering. Recognize it. Here's the reality of the source of suffering. Abandon it. Here's the reality of the cessation of suffering. Realize it. Here's the reality of the path to the cessation of suffering. Follow it. But the first one is here's the reality of suffering itself, the whole bandwidth. And he said, recognize it. Don't flinch. Don't escape. Don't blink. Don't close your eyes. Don't ignore it. Don't anesthetize it. Recognize it. And that's what Vipassana is really for. So where do we suffer? We suffer in the body. So good. Take a close look. Expedition. Expedition. Getting X out your feet, ped, as in pedestrian, getting your feet extricated from where they are stuck. It's getting out of ruts. That's what the pashana is. That's an expedition, to get your feet out of where they are stuck. So where are we stuck with the body? The body is permanent, it's stable, it's abiding. The body is a source of my pleasure. I can hardly wait for dinner. But it will demonstrate once again how great it is to have a body and it's me. That's When I look into the mirror, by gum, that's me looking back. That's a reflection of me, and it's certainly mine. So there's a rut. You know, there's a, these closely held body with a one-sixteenth of an inch of armor to protect me from all of the things out there in the world. Yeah, I think the rhinoceros has had it much better off than we do yeah. in that regard. And so it's closely inspecting, closely applying mindfulness to the body to break through the ruts, to break through the reification, the superimpositions, the delusions that we have about the body, to see it as it is. And then we want to move on to feelings, to see them as they are, rather than simply entering into the cognitive fusion. I feel bad, I feel happy, I'm bored. Total cognitive fusion with a very sense of identity with the feelings. Seeing through that, it's an expedition, it's breaking through the old patterns, likewise for the mind, likewise for phenomena. So Vipassana is an expedition. It is breaking through old patterns to see reality as it is rather than falling into the ruts of seeing reality as we assume it to be.
So coming back to our practice this morning is, of course, what you see, I, I assume as a parent, that what I'm seeking to do here is to weave our morning meditations into a firm knit. So you come out with a shamatha for immeasurable sweater by the time you leave. You know, then it's all woven into each other, right? And so that your practice of shamatha will be loving and it will be compassionate. And every time you're able to release a thought, you'll do so with empathetic joy. And when all the ups and downs and ups and downs, you just sail through it with equanimity. Right? And likewise, you bring the insight, the stability, the clarity of the, of the shamatha practice to the four immeasurables. So among the shamatha practices we engage in in the morning, mindfulness of breathing, tending to, first of all, the body, is a very good escape if where you're suffering is in the mind. Ruminations, memories, anxieties about the future and so forth, taking place in a conceptual, in the mental domain. Well, if that's where your suffering is, why not get out? Why not escape and come to that non-conceptual, non-verbal domain of tactile sensations? That's a nice escape. You just withdrew it from where the suffering is. On the other hand, some of you have been ill while you've been here. And so if your body feels bad, I mean, your back hurts, you feel nauseous, you've got, you've got sinus problems, mucus problems, and so forth and so on, you may, want, may not want to really hang out in the body that much. You're just hanging out where the suffering is. In which case, you might want to just go into retreat and withdraw your awareness. Take it away from the whole domain of the body and shoot it right up into settling the mind in its natural state or just go right beyond that into the stratosphere, into awareness of awareness. There's no body there. There's no tactile sensations there. There's no physical unpleasantness there in just awareness of awareness. So those are two escape routes. If the, if the troubles are in the mind, you can go to the body. If the problems are the body, then you can go over to the mind or into awareness itself. Those are retreats. Those are samadhi angles. Those are samadhi strategies. be very useful. On the other hand, settling the mind in this natural state, while it may be an escape from tactile or somatic discomfort, when it comes to the mental, if you're engaging in the settling the mind in this natural state, that's more like an expedition. Because now you're facing the feelings, the emotions, the thoughts, the memories, the fears and anxieties. You're facing it all. And now, and now once again, it's expedition mode. Even though we're calling it shamatha, it's so close to vipassana. It really is ex it's expedition mode that I'm going to face into the wind of these and they will be washing over me and I'm not going to fall into the ruts of cognitive fusion and be carried away by them so that my mind is captured, caught in the grip and yanked over so my attention is attending to the reference of the thoughts. But rather, I'm just going to be there facing into the wind, the thoughts, the memories, the emotions, all that arises, and I'm just there moment to moment to moment to moment without distraction, without grasping. Without distraction means there's no escape. There is an expedition. Without grasping, that's where the expedition, the core of the expedition is, to face all of these, to be present with them, attend to them, without the cognitive fusion, without the grasping, the craving, or the aversion. That's where the expedition is. That's novel. That's novel. That's really unusual. We, never, we didn't learn that in kindergarten, or in elementary school, or in middle school, or high school, or college, or postdoc. They didn't teach that. They missed something. Too bad. So some of you are now experimenting with lucid dreaming. Very cool. Some are more gifted than others. Don't worry about it. You all have dreams. 
You all have Buddha nature. You all have a substrate consciousness. You have all the equipment. You just haven't learned how to use it yet. You don't need to get the equipment from somebody else. And it's exactly the same in the dream. Some dreams are unpleasant. Some are really extraordinarily unpleasant. We call them nightmares. Insofar as you become even a, just a little bit lucid. In fact, it's the easiest way to become lucid for a very short period is to have a nightmare. And it's so weird and it's so grotesque and so unpleasant that the thought, the little inkling, germinating thought might arise, this has got to be a dream. And you have that moment, that flickering three or four seconds of this has got to be a dream. And as soon as you recognize it's a dream, you just hit the ejector button. Is that good? You, you know, you're out of there. You just shoot yourself right out of the dream and say, heck with this, I don't need this. I'm waking up. And that's the easiest way to have a really short, lucid dream. To recognize that nightmare is a nightmare. So I don't have to put up with this. I'm out of here. And just wake up. Or you can just hit the ejector button and just say, I'm out of here and I'm just going to go back to deep sleep again. I don't need this. I'm just going to you know, pass out. I don't need to hang out in this crummy dream. It's my dream. I created it. I can destruct. I can destroy it either by waking up or just going deeper, right? So that's the escape route for an unpleasant dream. And then there's the expedition route. You all know what that is. Become lucid. Stay in the dream. Keep it percolating. Keep it flowing. But become lucid and then become more lucid. After you become more lucid, become more lucid yet until all of the sting is taken out of the dream. Until you know, you gain a non-conceptual certainty that nothing in the dream can harm you whether or not it continues. Nothing can harm you. It's like looking at a display of rainbows and just recognizing however big they grow, however bright they are, there's just no way those rainbows can hurt me. That's true. Or a mirage. Or a reflection in the mirror. Or, of course, now we have television and movies. No matter what the image is, if you really are recognizing that is a screen, then whatever it is, it could be the 10-foot, no, the 10-meter python that Klaus was telling me about the other day. A 10-meter python that was discovered down in Indonesia. So you could, have a th you could be watching a 3D movie down in Sydney, which apparently has the biggest IMAX in the world. A 3D, something like a 60-foot, I don't know, 80-foot screen. It's a I w went there, and it's a big screen. And the 3D is very 3D. I watched something on the Hubble telescope. It's very cool. But you can imagine a 10-meter python in that theater in a 3D and coming towards you, you know. And if you really know that you are in a theater and you're not crawling around in that jungle up there, <laughs> then you can just kind of chill and smile as that image of the python comes lunging towards you. I think it was Klaus told me that they, they have big pythons down there. And one swallowed a calf. A calf. <laughs> I think you wanted to know that, right? I mean, we're heading to compassion. <laughs> you can imagine that was a lot of suffering for the calf. That would be blatant suffering. We call that blatant suffering. But it turned out to be blatant suffering for the python, too, because it exploded. <laughs> yeah, it burst. <laughs> he just kind of, as they say, he bit off more than he could, he could not chew. Because <laughs> you know? pythons can't chew. They can just swallow. I can't imagine there's a lot of pleasure in that. Can you? I mean, steak, I can understand. But 
an unchewed calf doesn't sound very tasty. Just skin. That's all you get, just skin, calf skin. I don't think it'd be much fun to be a python. Even when you get a really good lunch, you just get the skin. <laughs> so, in a lucid dream, the expedition is becoming extremely lucid. In the meditation, becoming extremely lucid. In the waking state, the expedition is to become extremely lucid. So as we cultivate then, coming back finally to the meditation, as we cultivate compassion, here's the, the level of suffering that everybody cares about. And again, it doesn't matter whether you're Albert Einstein or somebody who is severely mentally retarded. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. A person with severe retardation doesn't want to suffer. The geniuses don't want to suffer. That's where commonality, common ground. You know? So, to wish that we ourselves and others may be free of suffering, blatant suffering, and the causes of such suffering, that's compassion. It's kind of compassion that everybody can relate to. And then to know that there are multiple, multiple ways to be free. Temporarily, by escape, by retreat. So in the contemplative traditions of the world, India being classic, but the Christians that did the same thing, the Desert Fathers, 1500, 16, 1700 years ago, again, it was withdrawing in. St. Augustine writes about this. It's withdrawing in, away from all the senses, withdrawing in, in and in, and beyond inwards, beyond in, to have an unmediated encounter with the face of God, which he described as the unchanging light. Quite interesting. Not as a man with a beard. He was no dope, you know, but an unchanging light. And that theme runs through the Neoplatonic tradition of Christianity for centuries after that. After all, in and then beyond in, to beyond in, in and out, beyond inwards and outwards. So there's an ancient theme of contemplative traditions east and west. And then as I mentioned, I think ever so symbolically, historically true and symbolically very full of meaning, the young Galileo as a, as a youth being trained in a contemplative monastery become a contemplative, wanted to become a contemplative, wanted to, but his father wouldn't pay for it. So he took, I believe, I think it's, this is done, I don't think this is a flight of imagination here, a wild overinterpretation. He had that, he wanted to stay and become a contemplative, spend his whole life as, as Brother Galileo, you know, whatever. Dad wouldn't pay for it. So then he takes that same impulse and he turks, turns it outwards where he can actually make a, make a living. You, you don't usually get paid for being a contemplative, right? But you can get paid for being a, a natural philosopher, a mathematician, and get a job in a university. You still can. So he took that same impulse and he turned it outwards, outwards, and beyond outwards. Outwards to the stars, the sun, moon, the planets. Outwards. Because, of course, in the medieval view, God is that which exists out beyond the heavens. And so to go out was to go out to God, right? You could either go out to God or into God. Galileo's dad wouldn't pay for him to go into God, but he could get a job going out to God, you know? So there it was. And Eurocentric civilizations have been doing the same thing ever since. So while the ancient contemplative traditions sought escape from suffering and its causes by going inwards and deeply inwards, even perhaps beyond inwards and outwards, 
the thrust of modern science and really, in a way, guiding Western civilization, Eurocentric civilization to a very large extent, we've gone outward. So just reflect. We're, we're all very familiar, even in Kamikya, even in Ulaanbaatar. We're all very familiar with what's the, what's the mood, what's the trend, what's the direction of modernity. It's the same. I've been in Kamikya, I've been in Ulaanbaatar, Singapore. We've all traveled a lot. That's why we're here. And how do we escape? We escape outwards. We escape outwards to work. If you're really suffering, get to work. That'll get your mind off of it. Right? When you're tired of work and you're still suffering, then get the benefits of work. Entertainment. Buy the latest PlayStation. Or the latest Sony. I heard Apple may be coming out with some video platform or something. That should be really good. There's an escape. And go into entertainment samadhi. Go into work samadhi. A lot of you I know are good at that. Very good. Entertainment samadhi. A lot of people are really good at that. Sports, video games, movies, television, music, anything. Crossword puzzles. Anything to escape. Anything. People magazine. Three months old. They know when you're waiting in the dentist's office. They know you are desperate to not have to be there just with your mind. And they know they don't have to give you current issues of the magazines. Because you will read a three-month-old People magazine or a Reader's Digest. If you want some real thrills, go for the Reader's Digest, three months old. You'll read that rather than sitting there for 15 minutes having to experience your own mind. They know that. That's why they, they, they slowly read all the current issues themselves and when they're bored to death, then they give them to you. Because they know that you've got no option. You can't leave because otherwise when your name is called, you won't get it. You miss your appointment and you'll still have to pay for it. So we escape in reading, entertainment, work. We escape in sleep. And then we escape with drugs. Psychopharmaceutical drugs, alcohol drug, nicotine drug, marijuana, cocaine, so forth. All escape. All escape. We escape outwards. We escape materialistically. I think drug addicts are some of the big, biggest materialists on the planet. Because they really are saying, my suffering is chemical, therefore this, the solution is chemical. It doesn't get much more reductionistic than that. Whatever they might believe, that's what they really believe. Because their problems are chemical, the solution is chemical. Sad. Very sad. So as we finally, after this long preamble, Go to the meditation. Consider there is meaningful escape. Meaningful to achieve shamatha. Meaningful to engage in temporary retreat, knowing that it's no ultimate or irreversible solution. But it may be a time to recoup, to balance, and to be in a better position to then set out on an expedition. Right? So as you reflect upon the suffering blatant suffering that you have experienced in the past, the memories of which linger into the present, the kinds of suffering to which you're vulnerable now and will be for the foreseeable future. Consider retreat, but also consider expedition. Consider, too, in the Buddhist worldview, that there's some types of suffering that arises that for which we'll have no mundane remedy. That is, there are untreatable diseases treatable cancer, 
There's untreatable Alzheimer's. There's untreatable number of diseases. One very famous story was from the disciple of Atisha, this extraordinary master from India about a thousand years ago, and his chief principal disciple was Domdumpa. Atisha was about to pass away, and he was going to go to a pure land. Not Sukhavati, his prayers, his aspirations, were to join Maitreya in his pure land, the pure land of Tushita, not the Deva realm of Tushita, pure land of Tushita, and to be able to receive teachings from Maitreya. That was his aspiration. That was his prayer. And, that, and he was going to succeed. He knew it. And his disciple, Domdumba, knew that his teacher was going there. And in all the causing condition was there. It was just a matter for him to stop breathing. And then his consciousness would be off to Tushita. So Domdumba asked of his teacher, Atisha, do I have the karma, do I have the good fortune to be able to join you when it comes time for me to pass away? Will I be able to join you in Tushita? I'd love to do that. Be with my teacher and be with my treya. What a, what a scoop. And Atisha responded, Do you have the fortune to join me in Tushita? Yes, you do. But first you must become ill with leprosy and you will die of leprosy. That will purify what needs to be purified. And through that process, then, after that's finished, you can join me in Tushita. So, Tom Tumbo was quite an exceptional adept. Really very accomplished. Nevertheless, there was some karma that was already in the pipeline already there coming. It's already there. It was just it just had to ripen. It was much too late to be able to purify it. It was already coming down the chute. So Dom Tumba needed to get it was his time. And he did get leprosy and he did die of leprosy. So there was no escape for him in the sense of not getting leprosy, but does that mean there was no escape? There was escape. Because he was a very accomplished practitioner. So he could escape in both ways. When he wished to, he could simply go into samadhi and leave his, leave his leprosy with no, con- with no consciousness around it. So it's just flesh that was diseased. So he could have a temporary escape that way. Or he could venture right into it with ex- in the expedition of Vipassana and simply see the leprosy, the symptoms and so forth arising in the space of the body but with no owner, no grasping, nothing closely held. And so there's le- leprosy looking around for something to glom onto and there's no one there to seize upon. So the karma came to its maturation. The karma matured, ripened, came to fruition. Had to happen. The seeds were there. But he didn't need to suffer from it, like almost anyone else would. So there's karma and its maturation, and there's also liberation in the midst of karma. It's a powerful, powerful message. That even when karma is is ripening, We don't necessarily have to experience the suffering that goes along with it. We can either retreat or we can have an expedition. Both of those are viable strategies. So as we arouse compassion for ourselves, we may bring to mind individuals for whom we may not be able to imagine realistically that there's going to be some escape for them from the challenges they're facing now. It could be a terminal illness. It could be other things where you say, I I don't see how they're going to get out of this one. Suffering of old age. What are you going to do? Turn the, turn the clock back? You know? so there's some things. If you're aging, you're just going to age more. It's not going to probably get a whole lot better when you're well along the, along the track. But as we hold that in mind, yes, there's the blatant suffering. 
But even if it can't be turned back, there's no medicine, there's no remedy, it can't simply be made to vanish, so the suffering is no longer there, disappears without trace, may you not suffer because of it. May you find a retreat. May you find an expedition. May you be free even in the midst of the ripening of such negative karma. So for ourselves, for others, for ourselves we call it renunciation. For others we call it compassion. Seamless together. Hola, so. Finally, let's practice. invite you to allow yourself to go into retreat, to descend into the quiescent space of your own body, with no memory, no concepts, no narrative, quiet, a field of somatic sensations. Settle your body in its natural state. With a total surrender of control, release your breath. Release it all the way through the end of each out-breath. And continue releasing until there's nothing more to give away. And the next breath flows in, freely given, without being taken or pulled.
allow yourself the luxury of going into retreat from your own mind by simply attending to the breath and releasing your mind and all of its activities from breath to breath. Arouse your mind, your intelligence, your imagination, your memory, and give careful consideration to the spectrum of blatant suffering of body and mind that you've experienced in the past. Some of it perhaps lingering in the future and into the present in some way or another the types of suffering to which you are vulnerable or perhaps experience explicitly in the present and to which you are vulnerable in the future. Attend closely to this bandwidth of blatant suffering. impulse to arouse, to arise, and that is the wish to be free. And imagine freedom, freedom through retreat, Freedom because the suffering itself vanishes and there's nothing to retreat from. 
freedom by way of expedition, seeing through the veils of delusion that bind our suffering to us. Imagine freedom. Imagine the domain of primordial freedom, your own Buddha nature, the orb of light at your heart and with each in-breath arouses yearning. May I be free of suffering, suffering and pain. And with each in-breath imagine drawing in and extinguishing the blatant suffering and its causes to which you are vulnerable. Imagine becoming free. as if you are completely lucid in a dream and therefore completely free of any danger from the dream, any suffering imposed by the events in the dream. Imagine being lucid in the waking state and free.
breath by breath, expand the field, the scope of this compassionate aspiration. Embracing everyone in your proximity, to the left and right, before and behind. Touching this common ground of all sentient beings that we all wish to be free of suffering and its cause. If you wish, you may imagine drawing this into your heart and extinguishing. If you wish not, with each in-breath, just imagine relieving the sentient beings around you, human and non-human, from the blatant suffering to which they are prone. Imagine relieving them of the suffering and its causes, and that suffering simply evaporating into space. And imagine each one becoming free. as you allow the field of your awareness to expand. Release control. 
and simply observe who comes to mind. Individuals that you know, others that you only, only know of, whoever comes to mind, continue practicing as before.
and release all appearances. Let your awareness rest in its own place, abiding there for a little while after the chime. Let's bring the session to a close. Olá, Su. So maybe it's a little time for a little bit of whimsy. Whimsy. Wild speculation. It's fun sometimes. In physics, in the philosophy of physics, some very deep, deep thinkers have drawn a demarcation between what are called observational entities and then theoretical entities. Observational entities are things you can actually witness, you can measure. So when Galileo dropped a big heavy thing and a little light thing off the Tower of Pisa and found that they both landed at the same time, he observed that. So that's observational. Right? <coughs> when he rolled balls down a ramp and he saw that they accelerated, did not go at constant velocity, that was an observation. That acceleration is an observational entity. 
the weight of things, the color, the size, shape, and so forth, speed, momentum, these are observational things. They're right there in the realm of appearances. But then, of course, for some reason, and it's quite mysterious, I think I don't make, think it makes any sense at all to try to understand this purely from an, of an evolutionary perspective. But there are many human beings throughout history who have seen the world of appearances. They want to make sense of it. Why? Why does, why does the ball accelerate? Why does it do that? Why this? Why that? And then we come up with theories like gravity. Newtonian gravity, warped space-time, Einsteinian gravity. We come up with notions like energy. Nobody ever sees energy. Nobody's ever... You, don't act, you can't really... Energy isn't an appearance. It's, a, it's quite intangible. But, it, but the conservation of energy explains an awful lot of things. Warped space-time, black holes, dark energy, dark matter, zero-point energy of the vacuum, quantum foam... So there are many, many theories here in which very profound thinkers, very, very deep thinkers, try to make sense of this physical world around us. And when they come up with these images, waves, particles, fields, and so on, one may wonder, where do the images come from? Because they don't come from the appearances. The appearances are their own images. They don't have images of images. Appearances are the images, right? So where does the image, the something comes to mind, came to, came to your mind, like into a black hole. Something comes to mind when you think of a black hole or the Big Bang or the expanding space-time. Nobody ever sees expanding space-time. Where do these images come from? These are theoretical entities. Nobody ever actually observes them. But as we conjure these up, we make sense out of things that would otherwise be disjointed, bewildering, not making any sense, weird inexplicable. And as I've been studying physics since 1980, well, seriously, I mean, off and on, certainly not constantly, since 1984, having studied earlier, but it was inconsequential. Before I studied Dharma, my study of physics had no meaning. What's really struck me is that many of these images, zero-point energy, the energy of empty space, virtual particles emerging out of and disappearing back into empty space, and many of these well, right while I was studying physics, I was also a Buddhist monk and I was meditating hours a day. And then when, as soon as I finished my, dis my thesis, I went off for a nine-month retreat. And, and before my thesis, I spent four years in and out of retreat. So my physics was all in it. It was kind of basically a meditation sandwich. You know, physics between two big loaves of, you know, brown bread. But what, and just a sheer flight of whimsy. What of all of these marvelous images, these exotic images ideas, these theoretical entities, are really simply external projections of states of consciousness. Where else do they come from? Again, they don't come from the appearances. The appearances are their own images. You don't get appearances popping out of appearances. Appearances are appearances. Where do they come from? Well, where else would they come from? God isn't giving them to us, as far as I know. I don't think the physicists claim I just got zapped from somebody outside, you know? So maybe all these images are actually have their reflections, their parallels in deeper, deeper states of consciousness. And in a way, when I read you know, about the theories of Roger Penrose, again, one of those brilliant theoretical physicists, mathematical physicists living today, and he's, he's conceiving of a whole dimension of reality that's just pure math, like a pure form realm, out of which the physical, physical realm emerges. 
and others like John Wheeler, whole role of the participant, the observer participant in this universe where time is frozen, there is no movement, there is no change, there's no evolution of the universe without the participation of an observer. Where did he come up with that idea? Well, by taking the mathematics of quantum mechanics and applying it to the cosmos, that's where, but that's not a satisfying answer, it's not enough. So in a way, perhaps, especially for these theoretical physicists, and their job is to go beyond appearances, it's the job of experimental physicists to explore the world of appearances, to make measurements, and to, to make really good measurements and see what appears, what the information is. But it's a job of the theoretical physicists to make sense of, to come up with theoretical constructs, to come up to con conceive that wonderful two two-pronged word, to conceive of theoretical entities, to make sense of, something that satisfies. Because a lot of scientists, physicists, a lot of them are not satisfied with just having a bunch of information and a bunch of data. You know? There's something deeper. They want it to be meaningful. They want it to satisfy. And so they come up with these elegant theories, string theory and one theory after another. And speaking of multiple dimensions of space, that's a hot topic in modern physics today. Maybe all of these are simply conceptual displays of dimensions of consciousness, which they could explore directly if they were contemplatives. But since the contemplative urge has been displaced outwards, then states of consciousness, which you could actually taste, which would be observational, turn into theoretical as we go from straight experience to conceptualization. Maybe. And maybe I'm just full of baloney. But it's fun baloney. I'm enjoying my own baloney. All right, here's a very practical question. It's taken right from the notes that uh, people also listening on the podcast can access. These are the notes for this retreat. Namely, it's the two sets of notes from my kind of standard uh, one-week shamatha retreat in which I cite... Buddhaghosa's definition or his unpacking of the term sati. It's sati or mindfulness. And so it's in those notes and the person is, is quoted at verbatim here and asked me, could you please, ex please explain the following excerpt from Buddhaghosa's commentary in the Fasudimaga, Path of Purification, on sati. And so he, I'm presuming this is going to be a correct quote. Why should I doubt? Uh, so sati's characteristic is not floating. So he says, please exp explain, explain, especially that which is underlined. This is underlined. Not floating. Not floating. The very nature of mindfulness when it is so authentic mindfulness, it's fully engaged with its object. So right now I'm attending to Nicholas' face, the appearance of his face. And so I'm engaged. You can see I'm very attentive. And, and then I can give a cartoon. When I'm leading a one-week retreat, I often do this. Okay, now I'm looking right at Nicholas' eyes and he can probably quite clearly see that I'm really attending to you. I'm, that, that's, you know, a couple of people right next to you. There's Chakdor and so forth. But they know I'm not attending to them. You can say I'm attending to you. So I'm being very mindful. I'm holding you in mind. I'm sustaining the flow of my awareness. I'm an ongoing flow of recollection of you. And now this will not be good for anybody on the podcast, but people here. Now watch me float. So I was fully engaged, and then I started full like a helicopter, like my, my attention had landed on your face, you know, made contact. 
And then it started to float. It started to drift. And this is an indication of laxity. You saw that my eyes didn't wander to the left or right. You might have been able to infer that I wasn't getting caught up in wandering thoughts. I don't know how much my face expresses. But I wasn't. And I wasn't going light or left. I wasn't distracted. My mind was imploding. It was starting to float off. And the Tibetan word for that we translate, that I translate as laxity, is chingwa. And chingwa means to sink. Sink as implode. Sink as disengage and withdraw into itself. So that clear, sharp, full engagement, the full attentiveness is lost because you start to drift. Not drifting away, drifting in. And it's a slippery slope from slippery slope from laxity to dullness to sleepiness to real drowsiness to falling asleep. And that's how you float inwards. So that's floating. Its property is not losing. So not losing is more in the excitation and distraction mode. So there I am once again. You'll be the object of my mindfulness. And then, oh, hi, Francesca. Hi. Oh, oh what, 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 what? You know, so I lost, I lost Nicola because, oh, look, but this Francesca, oh, hi, Barbara. You know? So I've lost Nicola. Uh, oh, hey, uh, what's up? You know? So that's just losing. You, you've lost it. You've disconnected. You've disengaged. So that's losing. Its manifest, this manifestation is guarding or the state of being face-to-face with an object. So it's guarding, fully engaged face-to-face. So that's why I chose this analogy tending to your face, face-to-face. It's face-to-face. Your awareness is fully engaged with the sensations of your breath at the nostrils. Your awareness is fully engaged with the space of the mind and whatever arises in it. Your awareness is fully engaged with just being aware of being aware. And it's not doing anything else. It's face-to-face. It's as unmediated, it's direct, as close encounter of the first kind as one can manage. And that's mindfulness. Right? And it's guarding that. It's holding it, sustaining it. It's not losing it. Its basis is strong noting. Strong noting. So I think that, that's now clear. Strong note. I'm really paying attention. And I'm not losing it. So again, the, the juxtaposition of samadhi. Think about, again, the etymology of samadhi. And that is, it's samada. This complete, real drawing together. Placement. And so it's like a sea anemone. A sea anemone. It, when you drop a little pebble into a sea anemone, then it goes, whoop. Right? But now, one can have too narrow a notion of what samadhi is, as if it always has to be narrow, and it doesn't have to be. It is just a coalescence. The word focus is good. It is a focusing. So it may be focusing wide angle, all sentient beings. Right? It could be focusing on space of mind. That could be pretty large. It could be fo- focusing on a seed syllable or a bindu at your heart chakra. That's pretty small. right? Or the tactile sensation at the tip of the nose. Awareness. No dimensionality at all. Neither small, small nor big. No boundary, no center, nothing. Just where that one you can't say big or small. It's just awareness of being aware, right? But there it is. That's samadhi. So when there is a, however big the object is, your awareness wraps itself around it, like that, including all sentient beings. So it may be vast. That's samadhi, where really comes into focus. And then the the mindfulness is not losing it. So I'll try to do again a cartoon. My, my mind, my, my head wandering around, my gaze wandering around, and then, and then I focus on your face again. And there's, and I think it's pretty obvious. I mean, Andreas and, and, and Chakra can see I'm not looking at them. 
And if I even gaze down at your navel or your, your, your chest, you know I'm not looking at your face anymore. So it's, you can tell it's pretty easy. Right? But there it is. It's eye to eye once again. So there's the samadhi. So oh, my mind wandering around like a, little, like a little bumblebee or a fly buzzing around in a house. And then... So that... Where, that's samadhi. And sustaining it is mindfulness. So you sustain and you deepen your samadhi by way of mindfulness, and samadhi enables mindfulness to have anything to work with at all. Because if, if there's no samadhi, then there's no way to even ignite or to start the sequence of mindfulness. But if there's no mindfulness, or very little mindfulness, then all you have is a, a mind that's samadhi on a whole bunch of things scattered all over the place. Not very useful. Olaso, so its basis is strong noting or the close application of mindfulness of the body and so on. So he's then showing how mindfulness can be applied in the practice of vipassana. It should be seen as, a po- as being like a post due to its state of being set on the object. So I think that's clear by now. And as a gatekeeper, like the gatekeeper at the apertures of the nostrils and mindfulness of breathing because it guards the gate of the eye and so on. So the practice commonly taught and very meaningfully taught, very beneficially taught, of like mindful walking, mindful eating, mindful speaking, mindful extending of the limbs and so forth. Um, there's really no reason, there's no, there's no, if we go back to the classic text, any classic text, from the Theravada tradition, Maya and so forth, there really is no reason to call that Vipassana. It's not, it never has been. So again, I, I, don't, I just don't think it's legitimate to just start calling something something just because you feel like it. Vipassana, the word, actually means something for 2,500 years. It's got some very clear meanings. And just being mindfully walking is not Vipassana. It's called mindfully walking. And so mindfully walking, mindfully eating, extending the limbs, being aware of what's arising in space of the mind, all of that is proto-shamatha. It's proto-shamatha. If you're not doing that, you'll never achieve shamatha. That is, if you're on the cushion and you're breathing in, breathing out, and mindful, and then as soon as you get off the cushion, your mind just flying all over the place. Well, it doesn't matter if you're meditating t- 10 hours a day. It means as soon as you're off the cushion, you're just unraveling everything you've accomplished on the cushion. So mindfully being present, mindfully, be, mindfully moving, speaking, eating, going to the bathroom, brushing tea, taking a walk, swimming, and so forth, is not Vipassana, never has been. So there's no reason to call it Vipassana. We don't need to call it Vipassana. It's just as good as it is. It's very beneficial. It doesn't get more beneficial by calling it Vipassana. It's like a VW, you know, like VW with, a, with a Rolls-Royce grill on it and say Rolls-Royce. Well, it's still a VW. And a VW is a really good car. I used to own one. They're really good cars. The VW Bug, that's a great car. But it's not a Rolls-Royce, and it doesn't become a Rolls-Royce by putting a Rolls-Royce grill on it and saying it's a Rolls-Royce. And then it cheapens Rolls-Royce, because Rolls-Royce is also a very good car. So, so mindful, 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 just being mindful, bear attention, very, very useful. Very good for the body, very good for the mind, and it's proto shamatha that's what it really is. And it's proto-vipassana, because shamat is proto-vipassana. So this is a proto-proto-vipassana. Like a VW is a proto-proto of Rolls-Royce. So very useful. And so in this regard, then the classic teachings of the Buddha are, you know, at all times when a monk is out on the alms round and so forth and so on, mindfully guarding the senses. Mindfully guarding the senses. The monk is in retreat, especially a young monk, a young monk who's so like a 20-year-old monk, just taken full ordination, right? I took mine when I was 25. Well, you got your hormones, you got your sexual drives, you got your habits and so forth and so on. So a monk, you, now you take, you've, 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 how do you say, freely chosen, freely chosen, most people, I certainly did, freely chosen to become a monk. 
This means you're, you're, wearing, you're wearing a symbol that in a Buddhist country everybody knows what that symbol is. You're wearing Buddhist monks' robes and it's, it's telling everybody around you, uh, all women on the planet, you're safe. For me, you're safe. I'm not a predator. I'm not going to pursue, even though I may have desires, you don't have to even think about it. That's not where I'm going. You know? And I'm not here to try to exploit people for money. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. This is a symbol. And if you're not going to live by that, you take off the robes. Right? But how does a young monk, who has you know, sexual drive and all of that, how do you do it? You guard your senses with mindfulness. And that is if there are beautiful women around, such that if you attend to them, craving is bound to arise, and such, you, such that you itify them, turn them merely into objects, oh, she'd give me a lot of pleasure. Then if that's where you still are, still, the old habits are still there, what do you do? You guard your senses. When you see a beautiful woman come into your, into your field of vision, you, turn your direct, you, t- you direct your attention downward. Yeah. Or if, you know, if, if she comes out and she's offering alms, then you guard your senses by thinking, ah, here's my sister. If it's a bit of older woman, here's my mother. Younger woman, that's my daughter. Right? But you bring in a concept to avert the old habit patterns. So you're guarding your senses, either by simply directing your attention away, it's a kind of retreat, to protect yourself, so almost like, you know, so you, won't, you don't get the flu, you know, the flu of your own mental afflictions. So you're guarding your senses of mindfulness. That's very, very central. And then you're monitoring. This is, this is all pre, pre-vipassana. And it's all also pre-shamatha. If you stuck in the study in the Lamrim, it's right there in the, in the, in the opening sections of Lamrim. Way, way before shamatha. It's guarding your senses with mindfulness and introspection just to kind of get sane, quarantine yourself from your own old habitual predilections and mental afflictions. So that's why I speak of being like a guard. And then, final question, we have two minutes. What do you mean, in chapter four, by saying that the achievement of the power of mindfulness at stage four, the practice comes into its own, could you use a synonym for that, comes into its own? Yes, mindf- the power of mindfulness comes into its own. Yeah, that's, that's really uh, kind of idiomatic English. It's not so clear to a non-native English speaker. Comes into its, it comes to its strength. That is, mindfulness is now operative. It's not perfected because the, the power of mindfulness is perfected only in the fourth jhana. That's way, 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 far beyond stage four. But mindfulness now works. And that is mindfulness on a coarse level, but a very meaningful coarse level, is that when you're on stage four, you don't utterly forget your object while you're in meditation. You don't completely forget it. It means you're, oh... I like the image of a, um, a, 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 a uh, what do you call them, a cowboy, but a, a person who rides bucking broncos, bucking broncos, what are they called, rodeo rider? Any horsemen here? Just, but a person who goes out, you know, and, and rides on the rodeo and rides bucking broncos or bulls, and they're going like that, and like that, you know. I, somebody took me to ra- rodeo about 10 years ago, so I saw it. And so you see, whether it's the bull or whether it's the horse, but they, they put this strap around their guts so the, so the horse is really uncomfortable. That's how they, that's how they get the, the horse to buck so much, because the horse is really in pain, and it wants to get the rider off, you know? And so they buck and buck and buck, but if you see stage four, you're like the rider on the, your horse, the bucking bronco of your mind, right? But you always have some contact. Even if your body is airborne, your hand still is holding to the saddle. Or something's holding on. You're still in contact. 
But if you're, if you're a writer, a, a radio, rodeo, whatever they call them, I've forgotten the name, but so, like the kind of person who rides bucking broncos, uh, if there's some point where there's no part of your body that's in contact with a horse, there probably won't be later on. Because <laughs> a horse would really like to get you off. You're really an irritant on its back. Right? So that's coarse excitation. You've completely lost contact. But even if you're, you know, most of your body is airborne and you're holding on with one hand, well, you're not suffering from coarse excitation. You may be having medium excitation, a subtle excitation. That's why your body's way up there. But you haven't completely disengaged. And so that means you're a very accomplished rodeo because you, if you can stay on the horse for the whole time until they just hit the buzzer and somebody, and then you just jump off, then, well, good. Then good on you, you know? You've made it. And you've achieved stage four as a rodeo rider. You haven't completely disengaged, lost the horse. Oh, yeah. So, enjoy your evening. Enjoy tomorrow. Free day, no structure. Sleep in, practice dream yoga. <laughs> the best dreams are the last ones at the night. The longest ones, the clearest ones. The best chance to have a lucid, lucid dream is the last one. So sleep in, enjoy your sleep. And I'll see you around.